Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Simon Unwin to talk about his book, Analyzing Architecture, the Universal Language of Placemaking. Simon is Emeritus Professor of Architecture at the University of Dundee, Scotland. Now retired, he continues to teach at the Welsh School of Architecture in Cardiff, UK. Simon, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for inviting me to talk about my new book. Anytime. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Uh, yes, I'm Simon Unwin. I was Professor of Design of Architecture and Design in the University of Dundee between 2004 and 2009. When I retired in 2009, I returned to Cardiff, and uh, where I'd been teaching for many years in the Welsh School of Architecture here in Cardiff. And the uh, uh, the book that we're talking about actually grew from uh, the the years of teaching students in the in the School of Architecture in Cardiff. Very interesting. So we'll dive right into it. I have a lot to say about uh, dealing with this book from a client versus a student's perspective. But so the uh, first question we'll start with, and so there's a lot of very unique material in here in chapter organization, but there does seem to be an overall structure to the book. And I was wondering if you could walk us through that a little bit before we dive into the specifics. Well, the structure of the book derives from the lectures that I used to give uh, in, the, in the School of Architecture in Cardiff. And they grew, actually, from me being a little bit subversive. Um, when I was a young uh, uh, lecturer, uh, the, the, the School of Architecture asked me to give a, le- a series of lectures in the history of architecture. And at the same time, I was uh, teaching studio. Um, so I was setting design projects, but I had the privilege of giving history lectures as well. And uh, I realized that the traditional history lectures don't necessarily directly i mean obviously they're important to the for the background culture of architecture but they don't necessarily directly help students with the challenges that they face in studio so being a little bit mischievous and having been given you know freedom by the head of school i started uh developing the lectures in different directions and uh the there were various key points along that i mean it turned out, you know, I was given English Renaissance to teach, and it wasn't my favourite period, to be honest. But I um, realised that it was actually quite a good springboard because it was a, a period of architectural history which it uh, derived from precedents. There were people who were studying arch- uh, architectural history, studying the architecture of the past. Uh, there were people uh, that were using proportions and using geometry. And I realized that I could start talking about things like proportion and geometry and axiality and uh, what 
sorts of things you can learn from precedent with the students. And gradually it grew and grew, and I took in a lot more. You'll see in the book that there's quite a lot that's drawn from prehistory, and there's just a just as much that's drawn from very recent architecture. And gradually, it uh, struck me that what I was talking about was something that is not directly equivalent to a link, a, 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 you know, a verbal language, but is a really complex and subtle and terrifically interesting language of its own. It doesn't work with words, though occasionally architects use words. It's uh, 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 So I realised that through my teaching, I was exploring the grammar, the structures and the, and the strategies that you can adopt in using this multidimensional language that you and I share, which is architecture, and I just love it. Absolutely. And so you had mentioned design studio and students. And so that's where I kind of want to start with. So whenever I, you know, interact with my own students, for no fault of their own, whenever we talk about what they want to do and what architecture is, sadly, most of them are just not aware of architecture. I didn't know what architecture was even after I graduated. And so I I wanted to start there. Your book does a great job of explaining a, a very good definition of architecture. And the fact that your definition actually came from almost musicology, not even architecture itself. <laughs> and so I'd love for you to kind of elaborate that for us a little more. Well, there's two dimensions to that. I think the, the musicality bit is that it's, uh, I was struck, oh, years ago by, you, you, you know, in the media, you hear people talking about a particular politician being the architect of a, a particularly po- a particular policy in musicology, as you mentioned, um, uh, composers talk about the architecture of a piece of music, the sonata form, and things like that. But I realised it's really quite rare to find in architectural literature people using the word architecture in that sense of meaning intellectual structure. You know, the, the actual um, uh, way in which the mind puts these things together. Um, just quickly, the other dimension of that is realising that the uh, burden of architecture, although we're bombarded by images in the press of really very beautiful buildings, it that tendency does... Uh, suggests that architecture is only a or primarily a visual art whereas if you start thinking about architecture as placemaking which is why the subtitle of the book is the universal language of placemaking you realize that it's really a very deeply embedded part of our relationship with the world you know that we situate ourselves in the world. We surround ourselves with walls. There'll be there are examples in the book where, you know, I would count a child sitting on the beach drawing a line about himself as being an architect who's making a place for himself, and uh, those sorts of things go right up through all the dimensions of architecture to the very the most sophisticated architecture that we see. Absolutely. And so you kind of hit the nail on the head there. And again, I, it's no, to no fault of most people, but there is just this general opinion of architecture. And it's usually very beautiful sculptural buildings. And so I, I warned you we we're going to jump around going to almost towards the very end of the book. You do mention and you don't 
particularly offer the opinion, but you do mention that with the rise of technology and parametric software, architecture, at least a lot of the high profile public stuff, is becoming much more prioritizing sculpture and form versus, as you said, the idea of placemaking and how it's going to be used in building it. I've already given away my bias that, you know, a lot of a, a lot of these sculptures can be placed anywhere, whereas real architecture, as you said, is someone chooses a place, they then yeah. decide how to use it and then build on it. Yeah, very much so. I try, I mean, people have commented that I don't judge. I probably do betray my own biases in my work, but I'm like to try to be open to all the rich dimensions of architecture. And of course, those rich dimensions include uh, the wonderful curvaceous buildings that are produced by architects using parametric software. I'm not going to decry those. But one thing I will stand up for is the belief that architecture can be an awful lot richer than that, and that there are a lot more dimensions Uh, than that in architecture. And I'd like students not just to be playing around with um, uh, spline curves or whatever. I'd like students to realize that they're doing something which has deep practical, but also poetic meaning for the people, their clients, the people that they're designing for, as well as for their own self-expression. Absolutely. And so kind of going into some strategies and maybe maybe not literal design strategies, but a concept I, I found very interesting is kind of the idea of the geometries of being versus making and social geometry. And I know that those are three really big things to throw at you, but I thought that those were great ways to kind of distinguish how it's not just about how beautiful it looks. There's other I guess, reasons to the form, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, geometries, uh, I think probably when I was a student, geometry was uh, actually played down quite a lot in um, the teaching that I had. It was almost like it was, you know, I think things have been perhaps different in the US from over here. But um, there was, uh, I'm old enough to go back to when, Modernism was still being taught in schools of architecture. (laughs) Uh, This is before the postmodern sort of phase. And uh, architecture, uh, geometry was thought of as being something that belonged to the Beaux-Arts, something that if you were a modernist, you didn't really engage in geometry. But when I started teaching, uh, lecturing and teaching in the studio, I realized that uh, geometry has so many different dimensions to it. And I also realized what you're alluding to in your question, the difference uh, between the different sorts of geometry of being, which include, as you say, the, the geometry of putting things, you know, building materials together, the geometries that we make as groups of people, the social geometries, uh, uh, and distinguishing them from the abstract geometries, the sort of platonic geometries uh, that uh, people tend to think of as being golden rectangles or root two rectangles or squares and circles and that sort of thing. And uh, I realized it was important that students knew the difference between those different sorts of geometry and were able, uh, like 
good creative writers learn about the different strategies and structures of stories, I think architects ought to learn about the strategies and structures, including the different ways in which geometry can be used uh, uh, to be good designers. Absolutely. And so to me, one of the best examples, and I, I'd like you to say, because you wrote it, <laughs> it, especially for our listeners who just haven't had a chance to read the book because they haven't seen this yet, is uh, you use the example of a cell built with bricks as kind of, and you're showing the different ways of being versus making. I was wondering if maybe you could explain that example to us for those who haven't been able to read the book yet. Uh, is this is an, exa- an example where uh, I talk about the the geometry of the making, the building of the bricks, but then if you wanted Correct. to make it into, into a perfect cube, you'd be doing something different, even though you'd still be using the same bricks. Absolutely, yeah, because I thought that was a great way to explain the difference between those terms. Uh, yeah, I, well, it's that, that more or less sums it up, Brian, because the, you, know, you get the... Uh, the the, I'm very to admit some of my biases. I'm very fond of the arts and crafts movement, and I'm very taken by the poetry of construction and the what they might call the honesty of construction. But then you get another layer that some architects put on on top of that, and it's not just Beaux Arts architects. It's also Le Corbusier did it, and all uh, Mies van der Rohe tended not to do it, but. Other architects um, um, have introduced this abstract platonic geometry as if that adds a dimension of uh, intellectual credibility or of uh, aesthetic um, value. And, you know, and you, again, you drew uh, uh, attention to the analogy with music. Uh, and of course, musical harmony uh, depends on uh, proportional geometries. About the you know the, the so uh, there have been arguments that architects can use the same sort of thing visually and introduce abstract geometries. But I just in those chapters, my main purpose was to draw the students' attention uh, so that they would be conscious when they were. Um, using the geometries of being, geometries of making or social geometries, and when they were verging on the territory of introducing abstract geometries, not to set any moral superiority to either of those approaches, Mm -hmm. just trying to make them conscious of what they were doing. (laughs) Great. And so you had mentioned this a little earlier, so think of this as a delayed segue. You had mentioned that you have a lot of focus on prehistory. And so I know I personally, you know, I've worked on commercial and government projects where the site is not that important. It's just something that was almost where they're available. But I also have work with residential where the site is everything. And so I found that to be very interesting. And I'd love to hear more about it. The idea that as you, you already hinted at it, that architecture can be somebody sitting around a campfire or sitting on the beach. And that's yeah. pretty much its origins is the idea, and I'd love to hear more about that. Oh, that's my favorite subject, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> the anecdote I tell is that um, we used to, my wife and I would take our children down to uh, the beach in West Wales. There's lovely beaches on uh, in West Wales. And my wife is very, very, very good at sitting, doing nothing in the sun. 
I am totally useless at that, Brian. So uh, what I used to do, I was uh, would get up and I'd go and um, study the um, the places that um, people make on the beach, and I'd record them. I'd do sketches of them, and I realised that that you know it sounds like it's just a sort of pleasant pastime, but I realised that what I was accessing was the language that people, humanity, had used since prehistoric times. You'd have children um, drawing a circle around their family's encampment. You are drawing a boundary around it. You'd get people who would draw... I, I think there's an image in this book, it's certainly in one of my books, of a, um, a rectangular... Um, outline on the beach with um, uh, an existing boulder embedded in the sand, which is in exactly the position of the altar in a church, and a doorway in the outline that they've drawn and a, and a towel lying in front of the altar. And you realise that what you've got there is a syntactical architectural form that goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And people... You know, even people today that have probably got absolutely no architectural training don't think of themselves as being architects, do at a subliminal level have access to that common architectural language that, uh, and I suppose my argument is that as professional architects, we can't just, you know, draw on our subliminal understanding of this language we have to become professional at it we have to you know like great playwrights and great novelists use language at a different level from us ordinary mortals uh, as professional architects we need to become sophisticated and professional in the way that we use our own architectural language so I'll, without putting words in your mouth and so you can correct me if i misread so you do. There is a great chapter that explains the basic elements of architecture, and I, I won't be able to list them all. But you did mention quite a few of them: boundary, you know, focus, wall, etc. And so you have a quote about that architecture is not just using basic elements; it's how you combine all those basic elements. And so maybe I misread it, but it seems that's what you just said: the idea that architects take all those basic elements that everyone understands, but uses them in a way that maybe they didn't wouldn't think of or wouldn't understand. Yeah, yes, that's it. I mean, I one thing I encountered quite a lot, Brian, is confusion um, uh, with uh, of no people who have already um, grabbed terms. <laughs> if you take, it. you'll have heard of um, space syntax, which was a movement uh, that originated, I think, in uh, the Bartlett School of Architecture in London some years ago, and they came up with a whole theory of how space had. Uh, uh, how you could analyze the syntax of space. I, I, I want to use that term myself in a different sort of way, but I come up against the problem that other architectural theorists have used the words I want to use. And, uh, but I think that uh, to explain you know, the, um, the way I would use syntax is exactly how you described it, that you've got these elements and there are um, uh, ways in which you put them together. 
so that you mentioned doorway, you mentioned axis, you mentioned focus, you mentioned wall. You put those together in a very common and very ancient syntax, which is that you uh, maybe create an enclosure, uh, a walled enclosure. You put a doorway in it. The doorway creates an axis which stretches both into the enclosure but also out into the landscape. You know, there are lots of examples in Greece of ancient temples that create a link with a, a, a distant um, sacred mountain. Uh, but in terms of the axis stretch you know, generated by the doorway, the axis that strikes into inside the enclosure creates a focal point opposite it, which is, of course, where in churches we put the altar or where in just about any temple in any religion across the world, it's where you put the focus opposite the door. And there you've got an example of a standard syntactical uh, arrangement of basic architectural elements. Um, Just as children... Uh, I'm not saying architectural. I always had to reassure students that I didn't think they were architectural children. But, you know, they are learning a language that they've got no reference for. And so, um, uh, like small children learn cats at on the mat or whatever, uh, you have to begin architectural learning by learning those simple, straightforward um, uh, syntaxes uh, like the one I've just outlined. I mean, that is the syntax which underlies the mosque, the cathedral, uh, you, you know, ancient um, stone circles, whatever. You're dealing with those common elements, the axis, the doorway, the enclosure, the focus, uh, and they're still powerful now. Absolutely. And so one thing I'd like to maybe get a little more clarification. And so that, thank you very much for going into that. It was a great explanation of the elements you discussed. And so later on, you have what you call kind of themes. And I believe there's 11 of them. And so I don't want to list them all off and bore you or my listeners. But so I was wondering if you could go into a little more detail. You know, you went, you did a great job explaining the basic elements. So then the themes you present, kind of what is the logic behind them? And just a few of them, you know, access, parallel walls, datum place, stratification. Well, again, those are like the parts of speech or the different grammatical structures that you get in language. So that um, uh, I don't know whether you encounter this in your teaching, but sometimes you get uh, a student who will want to do, uh, just for the, the, the hell of it, want to do a, um, a hexagonal plan. And uh, you know, it's a common problem for tutors that you know, get the student who wants to be different and wants to do a hexagonal plan. Uh, so you point out to them, well, that 99.99% of buildings across the world have um, rectangular plans and uh, walls that are parallel with each other. And uh, there are reasons for that. And you know, in maybe not in terms of the... You know, creating the attention-grabbing, um, you know, uh, high-profile buildings that we're, po- we're able to create today, but in terms of learning the fundamentals of the language that you've set out to learn as an architecture student, you should understand why uh, parallel walls are uh, a powerful starting point for the uh, composition of 
architectural design. They also create um, a focus, uh, a dynamic. So there's all sorts of dimensions to just something as simple as a parallel arrangement of walls. Then, of course, you mentioned also the grid and you know, from uh, Beaux-Arts buildings through to Frank Lloyd Wright to you know, so many architects have enjoyed the benefits of uh, uh, you know, that sort of, um, I call it the rod and the staff. The, you know, it's the thing that supports you and the thing that also controls you uh, that uh, a, a grid provides. You know, how, how many times has a tutor sort of taken a student who's struggling and say, well, how, why don't you try a grid? <laughs> you know, it's almost like you know, a grid in, immediately introduces a sort of geometric order into a plan. It gives you something to respond to, like the beat in music. You know, you know, so much music has a beat, and that's the sort of equivalent of the uh, of the grid in in architecture. Then there are other of these themes in spatial organization. I won't uh, I won't go through them all either. But the you know, for example, there's um, uh, Dayton Place, uh, and that can be extremely useful for students once they start. Um, uh, dealing with buildings that are more complex. And uh, you point out to them, well, we want to give some sort of spatial hierarchy to this plan. Uh, people want to be able to know where they are as they're walking around this fairly complex complex plan. And one of the ways you can do that is, I mean, again, these are fairly commonly found, but the, and they go back into prehistory. Uh, maybe you use a courtyard or you use a street and they are providing um, the plan with a datum space, a place that you can refer back to uh, so that you know where you are. So the, all those 11 um, themes in spatial organisation have uh, the same purpose within the book, to help students with strategies by which they can uh, use techniques that have been used by architects for centuries in um, making sense of their buildings and I found them very, very effective. And so I guess one thing I'd, you know, we've been talking about students a lot, of course, because of your educational background. I think one thing you do mention that, and there's actually a chapter about it, about how analysis can help your design. And I think one struggle, and again, it sounds like we've been picking on students, but the reality is for anyone who isn't an architect, or even people who are in the architecture field, you had said it very directly that it, what's, one of the challenges is this is not mathematics. There is not a correct answer for almost anything. It's all subjective. And so that just ad adds this whole dimension of difficulty, I guess I'll call it. Mm. Mm. You know, and you, you oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I would need to say that, I mean, the uh, I've been very keen throughout my uh, career writing these books. This is the fifth edition. This, this, um, right. these five uh, editions have been a personal journey of development for me <laughs> you know I, i'm still learning i'm still I, i'd like to do a sixth edition in five or six years um uh but right the way through i've never wanted to provide a manual or a primer right. on how to go about designing architecture i've been much more interested in opening the doors to this amazing world of uh, architectural strategies and the ways in which architecture works. And one of the main re ways in which I've done that for myself is that for I've got 
if you did have a camera on, uh, you'd see behind me a, a, a bookshelf that's full of black notebooks. <laughs> uh, I've kept notebooks for ooh, 50 years and I've got a whole stock of them and I continue to keep notebooks. And of course, I encouraged students to keep their own notebooks uh, as a way of collecting ideas and strategies and one and developing not my understanding of architecture but i'd like every student to develop their own understanding of architecture and i think i begin the book by saying every architect is an autodidact yes every architect has to find their own way through architecture and express their own attitudes and beliefs and values uh, through architecture in the service of the people for whom they build. And I, I actually, I want to come right back to that, but you do have a, and I'm fortunate I don't recall his name. You have a great quote from somebody who mentions that it's very valuable to study other architects, but just remember that they, their designs can pollute or perfume your own. Yeah. And I'm paraphrasing <laughs> I think that. that's actually, you, you're, um, I think that's actually a writer. Is that right? But okay. I do I do like to find those quotes that from a different creative medium that seem to support my argument. You know, because there's one which is uh, uh, I think that one is um, oh, I've forgotten his name now. He's a crime writer, uh, and he's saying, "Yeah, I'd like to have heroes." And uh, before you know it, there. Um, uh, studying their work either perfumes or pollutes your own work. <laughs> but there's another one by Seamus Heaney, the famous uh, Nobel Prize winning poet. And he says that even if you want to be a rebel, you should understand what other people have done, even so, just so you can contradict what they did. Absolutely. <laughs> and so people, you know, uh, you knew, know students as well as I do, and they tend to be a bit wary of, being accused of imitating, they they want to be original. They want to be original geniuses, right? And I think Seamus Heaney recognised that in his own poetry students too. And I think the point he was making was, yeah, we are, yeah, you you've got to be yourself, but you can become more yourself by studying how other people have done it, and that's supported. Uh, musical composers, it supported um, creative writers, it supported poets all through it, through history. I I just reinforce the point that it should be what architects do as well. Right, and so I, to get back to the point we were talking about, and what maybe you had mentioned notebooks, and you would talk about it in the book, you know. And so I I personally I actually never carried a notebook until I started my own business. I'm not sure what changed. Right. I think it's because all the meetings with clients. Yeah, But I know I personally can say what a difference it is to have something and to scribble all my messy handwriting and all my nonsensical sketches in it. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was a, a great point. And so you had mentioned you're suggesting it to students, but I, I think a lot more of our listeners and architects would want to hear more about the benefits of it. It sounds simple, uh -huh. but I don't think it's caught on. Uh, it's like an extended memory. <laughs> uh, you know, that's how you just referred to it. Absolutely. But also it's, it's like a laboratory. You can try out ideas. It's um, a storeroom for ideas. It's, uh, I've always, um, uh, I remember we went, my wife and I went on a trip to Japan. I 
wanted to go to Japan for a long, long time uh, to see those wonderful um, temples and tea houses and gardens. And uh, I'd always be, I remember sitting in a little tea house trying to estimate the dimensions of the plan (laughs) and sketch them. I always have a piece of squared paper and uh, I choose a notebook that's got paper thin enough to be able to uh, see Mm -hmm. the squares of a piece of squared paper underneath it. And I was sitting there just, I mean, it's a little bit easier with a a tea house because, of course, you've got the tatami mats to help you. Right. But I was there uh, trying to draw the plan of and the section of this tea house. And I don't know, there's something happens when you're, and I've done that for buildings, you know, throughout our travels. And there's something that happens by doing that. You sort of assimilate something of the, not just the form of the architecture, but also the mentality of the person who designed it. So you're through the notebook and what you do in it, it can be like a conduit of connection um, with your fellow architects. It's like you enter a shared world, which is a world where the building exists, which came out of the mind of the other architect. And by sketching it, by drawing it, by estimating its plan and section, you're introducing it into your mind. So the notebook is essential as that sort of um, conduit. It doesn't doesn't work if you just sit there and look at the building. You have to put yourself through that process of drawing and estimating, and trying to make sense of what it is. Very, uh, very interesting thought. I never thought of it that way, as I said, but that's one. Now I'll look at it that way. My, again, mm. my my own notebook started from a very practical mentality, yeah. but that's and so well, send, send your notebooks over, Brian. I'd love to see them. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> You can see a lot of uh, client demands as well. <laughs> yeah. And so there's, so there, as, as I've already said, there's just a lot in here. You know, I've actually been out of school for over 10 years. I'm a practicing architect. And I still, uh-huh. I was very joyed to read the definition of architecture. Something, I'll be honest, I probably thought I would gloss over. But so I think yeah. there's a lot in here for anyone. Oh, you're very kind to say that, Brian. And so, of course, I'd love to go through it all. I'd hate to take up your entire day, though. But uh, since the book's come out, you know, you've already hinted at wanting to do another edition, but what, what projects have kind of occupied your time? What have you been working on? Well, the, um, uh, as I say, the, the book has developed over the last uh, 25 years, and right. it was based on work that I was doing even before that. So it, it's probably something that uh, has a, a roots that go back half a century. Um, right. But what I'm, uh, uh, as I hinted, I'm, would like to still develop the book. And so a couple of years ago, I pitched to my publisher the idea that instead of making the book longer and longer and longer, that I would start um, a series of analyzing architecture notebooks. Yes. Um, And these uh, are of a smaller format, but they consist of subjects that could have been additional chapters in the foundation volume, Analyzing Architecture, but by making them separate volumes, smaller volumes, it gives me more space to uh, expand upon those subjects. So the the ones that I've done so far are uh, one on curve, which is, you know, I don't know which side of the argument you come, <laughs> but I, 
I, I, I come across architects who say, oh, you shouldn't do curves, they're just a problem. And then on the other hand, you get huge seductive, seductive uh, influences on students wanting to do curvaceous buildings. That's fine. Uh, both those attitudes are fine by me, but I wanted to use one of the notebooks to explore the those dimensions of the curve in architecture. I did another one on metaphor. Uh, these are all you know, exploratory for me as well. I don't quite know what I'm going to say when I set off doing them, but I really enjoy the, uh, the, 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 the process of exploring them. And I realized that, you know, going again, alluding to the prehistoric architecture, a lot of that prehistoric architecture, whether it's stone circles or standing stones or burial chambers, is all metaphorical. And so you realize that metaphor has been part of the driving force of architecture for thousands and thousands of years. And then another one I did is on shadow. Looking Quite often architects think that you put forward the idea that light is important in architecture. And of course, light is important. But I thought I'd perhaps look at it from the opposite direction and think, why is shadow important in architecture too? And of course, there are the, the famous books like Tanizaki's um, uh, In Praise of Shadows. Uh, but uh, I enjoyed six months putting together a notebook on the power of shadows in architecture. And then one that goes back to a point that you drew up uh, you, you drew attention to earlier in our conversation, which is about um, uh, prehistoric forms that we find even in the thing, places we make on the beach uh, you know, today. Uh, I did a fourth one on um, children as placemakers, and that gave me an opportunity to uh, look at those primary uh, or even primal uh, ways in which we make places for ourselves in the natural landscape, and I really enjoyed watching my grandchildren. <laughs> you know, they make like all small children. They make dens and they build forts and all those sorts of things. And I just thought, well, there's something here that I can put together into a notebook as well. So that's where my mind is at the moment: is producing some more of these uh, notebooks, Brian. Interesting. Perhaps we'll uh, talk again about some of them in the future. I'd love to. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Brian. It's I as been well. And uh, just so you don't think I didn't, I don't want to blow off your question. Uh, I have in the in the single family residential world, which is where I'm at. I have yet to meet a client willing to pay for a curve, so I don't have my own opinion on it. Yet. <laughs> thank you for that, Brian. <laughs> but so yeah, so thank you again for being on the show and talking with me today. A pleasure, absolute pleasure. And for our listeners, the book is Analyzing Architecture, the Universal Language of Placemaking. So thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you.